So my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And man, thank you guys so much for uh, spending your Easter with us today. Uh, you could have been a lot of other places, including Bedside Baptist, but you, uh, <laughs> you chose to be with us today. And certainly, if you're new to church and you haven't been in a little bit, uh, I know how intimidating it could be just to walk into a, a building you've never been to, see a whole bunch of faces you've never seen, and we're so great, grateful that you are here with us today. Uh, but Renaissance is more than just uh, a place that you go to uh, on a, for church on Sunday. I'd like to pride ourselves as being a family. And all of you guys who are with us today, welcome to the fam. Uh, we are now third cousins. Um, I'm going to let you guys in on a little family secret about me. Uh, growing up, uh, my nickname is Bear. Uh, to this day, my parents still call me Bear, and that's based on the fact that I may or may not have been obsessed with teddy bears growing up. I had Harry, Barry, Larry, Gary, and Stuart. Those are my homies. I get a little emotional when I think about them. Pour out a little juicy juice for the teddies who ain't here no more. And I, I carried teddy bears around with me everywhere. And thankfully, by college, I had put them away. Um, but I earned the name Bear. Uh, it, the nickname came and it fit me. One of the interesting things about nicknames is that they often attach themselves to you at one part of your life, but it doesn't necessarily mean who you are in the future. So I haven't played with teddy bears in a very long time, uh, not that I would at least confess to you today, um, but to this day, my parents call me Bear. Sometimes we get a nickname at some point in our life, and it just attaches itself to you. Other times, uh, there's a bad day that you might have, or uh, some of the nicknames are not even fair. I had a friend growing up in elementary school. Uh, we called him Dragon, short for Dragon Breath. Um, <laughs> one bad day where it, his breath was definitely kicking that day. Um, and for the rest of elementary school and middle school and high school, we call him Dragon. Uh, on his Facebook page, when he got married, it was like, hey, Dragon, congratulations <laughs> on the nuptials. Is it funny? Yes. Is it fair? Probably not. Now, in life and in history, sometimes you'll see people with nicknames that don't necessarily fit them. And I want to turn to a story in Scripture about a guy that has gotten the nickname of Doubting Thomas. One day, he had one act that has led us as a church to talk about him for the last 2,000 years as the doubter. Now, here's how his story goes. It starts in John 20. It says, when it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, said to them, Peace be with you. Having said, them, said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will never believe. From that moment on, he has been referred to as Doubting Thomas. Now, it's true that he had some doubts, but that name of Doubting Thomas and that nickname which has attached itself to, to him is a little unfair. Uh, mainly because uh, who in this room could say that you don't have any doubts? 
it was a, a commonplace thing for those who, uh, even in the earliest days of Christianity, to have some doubt. So you and I would be kidding ourselves if we said that we had none. And it's an easy way for us to attach the label to someone else as Doubting Thomas and somehow give ourselves a better uh, name, like as if we don't struggle with doubt. Now, you might be new to church or you might be super saved, but I guarantee you that all of us struggle with doubt in some way. It's a wrestle that none of us are immune from. Now, today on this Resurrection Sunday, all over the world, Christians are coming to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right now in North Carolina, there is a man with a yellow suit with his uh, jacket down to his ankles, uh, and they're in in a hot church somewhere, and all over the world, people are celebrating this resurrection of Jesus. And amidst the celebration, amidst the funny color suits, amidst all of the things that are going on in the brunches, comes this fact, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Thomas had doubts, and for that, we call him uh, Doubting Thomas. Now, if we're honest, most of us have doubts because, uh, you know, we've been to a lot of funerals. Uh, You might have been to a bunch of funerals, and I certainly have been to my fair share, and I have never seen someone get up out of the coffin. And if they did, I'd be the first one to leave that funeral. Uh, I don't want no parts uh, of that. Now, doubt is often seen as the, the opposite of faith. Oftentimes, when we think about doubt, we think, I have doubt because I don't have any faith. Better understood is that doubt is faith in something else. You have to have uh, all, we have doubts because there is something that we find more credible, more believable than the other thing that's presented to us. Case in point, uh, I grew up in New York uh, and I have 36 years of experience of the misery of the New York Knickerbockers. And I have severe doubts that the Knicks will ever win a championship. I have severe doubts that the Knicks will ever be good, that they'll ever be the best team in the NBA, because I have 36 years of evidence of horrendous personnel decisions, of draft picks with people whose names you could never pronounce, that never made it to the NBA, and it's laughable to think that the Knicks would become champions. I believe the 36 years of evidence more than I believe in the future of a Knicks championship. It's not that I have doubt, it's that I believe something else. When we talk about belief in the resurrection or doubt in the resurrection, it's based on a belief in something else, that people don't get up out of the ground, people, don't, people who die don't come back. Now, doubt is a, is a funny thing, and certainly when, we, when it comes to the resurrection, I know there's no shortage of people who would struggle and wrestle with doubt. Did Jesus, in fact, uh, get up? And we could spend an hour in here talking about all of the historical reasons why it could be credible and all of the... Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in this person of Jesus, but one of the the most profound ways that I've been encouraged and strengthened about the resurrection and its truth and its credibility that Jesus is not just some figurative savior that was figuratively resurrected, but that Jesus is a real savior that was really resurrected is based on the witnesses that testify about Jesus's resurrection. Now, maybe because I'm an attorney by trade, uh, looking at the credibility of the witnesses is something that gives me so much hope. Now, what you see earlier in the scripture is a group of men and women who were terrified. Verse 19 starts off with these people saying that they were in fear of the Jews. Now, essentially what was going on was uh, the same fate that met Jesus, his death, would have likely been taken to Jesus' followers. They were trying to stamp out any movement of Jesus' followers, and to say that you follow Jesus literally would have cost you your life. Peter, as the story goes, uh, when he was following Jesus, was terrified to even admit 
that he knew Jesus and he denied Jesus three times. Now, this same group of huddled, fearful disciples suddenly turn into the most courageous and bold people on the planet, willing to risk their life based on a claim, not that Jesus was a good teacher, not that he healed a leper, but that they saw this dude, Jesus, and he was resurrected. And these same fearful people would endure the greatest of harms to themselves, and they, uh, for them to admit and to claim that Jesus was resurrected literally came at the, at the expense of their life. Some of those people were fed to lions, literally. Some of these people were boiled alive. Others were crucified upside down. What would motivate you to go to your death to hold on to a lie? Not much, certainly nothing for me. Now, something happened in their life, and these people testified that they had seen the risen Jesus. And that, for me, gives me a great deal of confidence because nobody gives testimony that would hurt them unless it's true. Years ago, I had a a legal case when I was representing a woman in a car accident, and she had uh, gotten hit by a car and gotten some pretty bad injuries, and I was going to do a deposition of the defendant. Now, in most cases, defendants give you the runaround. They don't give you any straight answers. So I was gearing up for war. I I was uh, ready to try to corner her into forcing her to to make a a definitive statement about what happened. And I I simply asked her, hey, so give me a, a rundown. What happened on this day at this time? And I was shocked by her answer. She said, yeah, I saw... Uh, the plaintiff coming straight, and the light was turning yellow, then it turned red, and I tried to hurry up and rush, and I ran through the red light, and I hit her. I was shocked because nobody tells the truth in, in law, period. Not even the lawyers. Uh, God forgives. That's why I'm not a lawyer no more. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but there's no motivation. Uh, we won that case pretty easily because there's absolutely no motivation to give a statement that will result in your demise unless it's true. We won that case so easily because her testimony was so believable because she was putting herself in financial harm that her uh, insurance rates were definitely going to go up. She could have lost her family business and she could have uh, had a judgment attached to her home. And what would make someone make a statement that's going to harm them unless it's true? When you look at Acts 1 and you see Jesus saying, you're going to be my my witnesses from Judea to all the corners of the world, he's giving it to people who are going to make statements to their detriment over and over again for them to come out and say that Jesus Christ was resurrected, put them in harm's danger, and it ended up costing them their lives. Now, still, with all of this uh, wonderful history and all these different things, uh, I'd be lying to say that I personally don't struggle at times with the reality of the resurrection, or better stated, that I don't always live like I believe it. Uh, I definitely don't always live as if I'm believing that Jesus Christ was was resurrected. And uh, a couple of things are huge signs for me that I I know that I'm actually not really living like I believe in the resurrection. And the first is when I'm just really beating myself up all the time. I'm wallowing in sin. Sin can be defined as missing the mark. It's when you do something you weren't supposed to do, or you don't do something that you were supposed to do. And usually what happens is when I, when I do something that I'm not supposed to do or I don't do something that I should have done, I, I beat myself up and I wallow over and over again. Now, confession is good. Confession is something that we all need. But the difference between confession and wallowing in guilt and sin is that you never feel any relief. You just go in this nonstop cycle of always beating yourself up and feeling like a failure and uh, talking down to yourself and, man, I never get it right, and you never quite feel 
forgiven. You're just in this endless loop of trying to have a better day so that you can feel forgiven. But here's what's so interesting about what Jesus promises us. Scripture promises us that in Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus gives us a promise that he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And all of your wallowing adds to absolutely nothing. But sometimes I, believe, I behave in such a way that I act as if Jesus' words don't have merit. I believe that I'm still wallowing in my sin, and I'm still wallowing in the mistakes I've made, and I'm still beating myself up over and over again because I'm not believing that Jesus, uh, that I can cash the check that Jesus has given me. Uh, when I was in uh, law school, I went to one of those schools where uh, the first day of class, the professor would say, turn to your left and turn to your right. One of you three will not be here next year. And it made everybody terribly nervous the whole first year, so everybody was trying to get a leg up to make sure that they could make the cut and make the grade to come back. And there was this one dude that was always just raising his hand in class and volunteering answers, and he was sticking his head in other people's study groups, giving people tips and pointers. And some people were listening to this dude, and I'm like, yo, the way his math add up, just something don't seem right. I knew someone that he was dating, and uh, they told me what his GPA was, and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely not listening to this dude. All he had were these empty words, empty thoughts, and he didn't have a GPA to back it up. If Jesus tells you and he tells me that we're forgiven and he didn't raise from the dead, then he cannot back it up. Scripture goes so far as to link our forgiveness with the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians um, 15 and uh, 17, it says, And if Christ is not, has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. If Jesus was just another good teacher, if he was just a guy that gave really good uh, sermons and he didn't raise from the dead, then you and I would need every bit of wallowing in our sins because the checks that he would write, we couldn't cash them. But the resurrection is proof that you and I can cash whatever check Jesus gives us. And when he says we're free, we are free indeed. The second way that I always know that I'm not actually believing in the resurrection is when I'm fearful. Uh, I'm fearful of what's going to happen in my life if I cannot figure out not just the next step, but the next five steps. I'm fearful that if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to just go down a path that's going to lead me to a really bad place. I'm fearful of what other people think about me. And I start to just hold others' opinions in way too high of a regard. Uh, and fear starts to categorize and it starts to um, shape my life. But if Jesus Christ was physically resurrected from the earth, and, I'm, and if I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then what in my life should I ever be fearful about? If God has promised me that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you and, and Jesus has actually been physically raised, what in the world should I be fearful of? Why would I care about someone's opinion of me if the risen Jesus is calling me and saying that I am his own? Oftentimes in my life, uh, I feel like the, this one man that came to Jesus, uh, his son was sick, he was having seizures, and it's a prayer that I've said about a thousand times in my life. Uh, he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Hey, my son is sick. If there's anything you can do, please help him. Jesus goes to the man and says, all things are possible to him that believes. The man looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a prayer that I've said a thousand times. Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Now, there's some things in the scripture today that gives us, give hope to doubters, and it gives hope to anyone who wrestles with the reality of the resurrection, and more importantly, helps us give a great framework on how you and I could approach Jesus, or better stated, how Jesus approaches us. The scripture starts off in 
in uh, John 20. Um, and the first thing we see in the scripture is that Jesus is gracious to doubters. Jesus is gracious to doubters. Uh, I can't count how many times I've had a conversation with someone uh, only to find out that the reason, the primary reason that they haven't come to church or back to church is the guilt and the weight that they feel of not having made all of the right decisions. So they stay away thinking, I need to make some severe improvements in order to make myself approachable that I can actually come to Jesus. I don't want to just disrespect uh, and just come up in the house so wrong because deep down inside what they're believing is that Jesus will not be gracious with them, that there's a certain level of life that they need to hit. There's a certain level of commitment that they need to hit in order for Jesus to welcome them, to accept them, to embrace them, to love them. What we see in the scripture is way better than our imaginations of Jesus. And we see that he is gracious to doubters. Um, Look at what it says in verses 24 and 25. Uh, It says, but Thomas called twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. What Thomas is basically saying is, unless I can confirm that this person that you said that you saw was actually Jesus, then I'm not going to believe. Now, Thomas is saying, I want to see the mark in his hands, and I got to see this dude for for myself to make sure that the person that you said you saw is actually Jesus and not his cousin, Alfonso. (laughs) That's not a biblical name, by the way. Don't go home and uh, look for Alfonso in Scripture. Secondly, he says, uh, unless I could put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. And and why does Thomas say that? What Thomas is basically saying is, even if I know it's Jesus, I need to know that he wasn't just nailed there with his hands. I need to know that he was killed and that he actually came back. What Roman executioners would do toward the end of a crucifixion was they would take a spear and they would thrust it into a person's side, collapsing their lungs and piercing their heart. These guys were professional killers. They knew how to kill someone. And Thomas is saying, I need to see the signature of the professional killers and know that this is the same Jesus that endured that, and he's actually alive. And if I see all that, then I'll believe. (laughs) How does Jesus then come to this doubter? Does Jesus kick in the door, wave in the 4-4, and chastise Thomas and and confront Thomas, saying, yo, bro, all of the stuff that you saw me do, you're going to doubt me? How dare you, Thomas? Everyone else believes, and look at you. Did Jesus come? Did he chastise him? No. Jesus is gracious to doubters. Scripture says, as you continue in the verse uh, 26, it says, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out, Thomas, and put your hand into my side. Don't be faithless. Just believe. Jesus is gracious to doubters, and Jesus will be gracious to you if you come to him in your doubt. Jesus will be gracious to you when you've made mistakes. Jesus will be gracious to you if you doubt whether this whole thing is worth it. Jesus will be gracious to you if and when you've done a thing that you promised yourself you would never do. Jesus will meet you with grace because this is who he is. You have someone who is uh, arrogantly boasting that there's no way I'm going to believe it in Jesus' best weapon. He digs deep into his secret weapon of 
of his arsenal, and he approaches Thomas with the one thing that you and I and Thomas need, grace. Years ago, when I took my road test, um, I had the instructor that just sat there with the clipboard, and every single time I made a turn, he would look down, make a little noise, and check off a little box, and I was absolutely terrified every turn that I made, wondering if I was going the correct speed, wondering if my hand placement was correct, and how this person was judging me. I think if we're honest, the way that a lot of us look at God is that God is our cosmic road test instructor. That the way Jesus approaches you is that he has the list and he is watching you go through the road of life and he has his checkboard and his his checklist and he is deducting points for everything that you do wrong. Scripture tells us in Colossians 1 and 15 that Jesus Christ is the, the visible image of the invisible God, meaning if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And this is how God will deal with you. He will leave the 99 to go after the one that's lost. He comes and disregards all of the other disciples, makes a beeline for Thomas and says, Thomas, do what you got to do to believe, but don't be faithless anymore. Jesus is gracious to doubters. Uh, His grace is greater than our doubts. Second thing we see in the scripture, it is that it is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves you. It is not how much faith you have, but what you put your faith in that matters. Uh, I've been obsessed with this one show called Life Below Zero on Netflix. Um, it's a great show. Um, my wife cannot wait until I'm done with it. It's like 20 episodes uh, per season. And um, uh, I, I love just watching these people go out and they're hunting moose and skinning stuff alive. And I have daydreams of me going out and being, um, that's why I'm growing my beard out to uh, prepare myself for the great outdoors. And um, one of the things that's so interesting on the show is that when they're right below the Arctic Circle, and after summertime, uh, the way that they travel, the way that they go hunting, the way that they go after food and supplies is they cross over the river um, to go hunting and get supplies and all these different things. But it's incredibly dangerous to go across a river that's moving swiftly unless that ice is really thick. One of the women in the show lost her mother to thin ice, and her mother stepped out on ice that couldn't support her weight, and eventually she stepped out on the ice and she died. Here's what's so important about ice. It is not the amount of courage and boldness you have that will sustain you. It is how thick that ice is. The only thing that matters on our journey of faith is not how bold and how, much, how confident you are and how much faith you have, but what you and I are putting our faith in. And Jesus here means to redirect our eyes to the amount of faith that we have to what we're putting our faith in, and it's him and his power and his resurrection. So you see in the scripture, Jesus continually showing people his wounds. Uh, In verse 19, it says, when the evening of that first day of the week, uh, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And then later, he shows Thomas his wounds, and he shows the disciples his wounds over and over again. And why is Jesus showing them his wounds over and over again? Because these fearful men, he was redirecting their eyes from their faith and their fear to him and his power. Our faith is the same way, that our faith is meant to be looked through, not at, like a windshield. Nobody would drive and get in the car and stare at the windshield for uh, uh, an entire drive. It's meant to be looked through, not at. 
The same thing is true here. Jesus is redirecting our eyes to not the amount of faith that we have, to not the amount of doubt or, or faith or whatever it is, how, how perfectly, uh, how much courage we have to walk out into the ice, but to say, look at my hands, look at my side. The ice of my life is 10 feet thick, and you can stand on it. You don't need a lot of courage to stand on thick ice. You don't need a lot of courage and boldness to, to be able to sustain yourself on thick ice. It is not the amount of faith, but what you and I are putting our faith in. Now, the last thing we see in the scripture is that the closer you and I get to Jesus, it helps us to drop our conditions that we place on him. So getting closer to Jesus helps us to drop our conditions. And to follow Jesus means dropping our conditions that we place on him, the if-then mentality. God, if this happens, then I'll do that. And Thomas's life was a life full of ifs. If I see the nail prints in his hands, if I can touch him, if I can see this, the part on his side, then I'll finally believe. When Jesus comes to him, in verse 27, it says, uh, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's really interesting that when Jesus comes and he actually puts his hands out for Thomas to touch him and shows him his side, Thomas never does it. He drops his conditions. The thing that he said he would never do, he does. He didn't put his hands in, his, in, his, uh, in Jesus' hands. He didn't touch Jesus' side because the closer you and I get to Jesus, it disarms us and it drops all of the conditions we have placed on Jesus. One of the conditions that I have um, in my faith journey that I wrestle with pretty frequently is to trust God to move me in a direction that I don't know the outcome. And I need to know the answers. And I say, God, if I can understand what's going to happen, then yes, I'll go. But blind, moving in a direction just because you say to go, it feels pretty terrible. If I'm being honest, a lot of times internally I'm saying, Lord, unless I can, unless I can make sense of this, I won't move in that direction. One of the reasons that we dwell on the gospel here at Renaissance so much is so that you and I can come closer to Jesus and we can see Jesus on the cross and that he has given us his absolute everything and that disarms us of all of our conditions that we place on him. When you see the one that gave you his everything, when you see the one that was willing to, to go to the cross to be mocked and spit on and, and to be beaten, when you see the one who gave us his absolute all, it helps us. It disarms us to remove our conditions on him and simply just to trust him. Quick question, how can you bargain with someone who uh, asks for your all when you already know that he's given you his all? As we come closer to Jesus uh, on our journey of faith, uh, the more and more you and I can grow in the understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us on the cross, how that frees us and how Jesus came and gave his life for us while we were still sinners. We didn't deserve not one drop of it. And this same Jesus with the nail-pierced hands invites you to simply trust him. Now, the journey of faith is no doubt a journey, but every great journey starts with a step. Uh, all of you guys got something on your way in, a, a next step card, which is basically uh, something that would do us a great honor, it would, would be to be a part of your journey in faith and to, to walk alongside you as you take that next step. Now, I would love for you to drop that next step card off at the info desk and come to the class on Saturday as you can evaluate and think about what it is your next step 
in following Jesus would be like. And here's what I hope motivates that, that you would see that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, and that that would motivate us to deep trust, deep confidence in Jesus, our living Savior. Here's the best news about this. Jesus promises us that he will never leave us and never forsake us, never leave you, and he will never forsake you, never leave and never forsake us. And with that truth can be so boldly proclaimed and believed because he has risen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for uh, just this day that we can sit and remember your life, your resurrection, your power, and your grace towards us doubters. Lord, uh, I pray for everyone in this room, those of us who have made commitments and not have made commitments, that we would all, Lord, see your hands and see your nail-pierced side, God, and we would take in faith the journey of just taking that next step towards you. And whatever conditions we have placed on ourselves or placed on you, Lord, that we would drop them and we would just simply follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.